Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Pleasure to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to start off with the obvious and kind of topical question here. Um, so in the book, you use the language of immunity, vaccination, disease, all of that to talk about mind parasites um, yes. at a time when obviously we are using this kind of language. These things are at the front of our mind with COVID-19. Um, so did that affect your messaging at all in the way you talk about this? Yeah. Well, I've had some friends say that... Uh, for the book anyway, the pandemic is kind of a blessing in disguise because it's raising awareness of how important immunity and vaccination uh, are for our collective well-being. Um, I hate to find a silver lining in something so tragic, but, um, but yeah, I think people are being confronted day in and day out with how vulnerable we are to, to infectious microbes. And the book basically develops the idea that our just as our bodies are prone to infection by microbes, our minds are prone to infection by dangerous and, and morally disorienting ideas. So uh, if we can develop our immunity to bad ideas, we can become healthier and in the end, wiser versions of ourselves. So I want to clarify this, because actually this was something I wanted to ask you when I started the book, but you clarified this pretty early on, so I want to talk about this a little bit. When you talk about mind parasites, these infectious microbes, you're not speaking metaphorically, correct? You're talking about this is an actual thing. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so when, when Richard Dawkins first introduced the concept of a meme about 45 years ago... Um, Which is not the meme we know it today. Well, he was talking about um, bits of culture that spread by getting people to imitate them. That was his initial definition of a meme, but it's since been generalized to packets of information, behaviors, um, other units of culture, really, that can actually spread in a viral type way. Um, and of course, the internet came along since Dawkins originally published uh, The Selfish Gene, where he introduced the concept of a meme. And since then, it's become palpable to everyone that information, and in particular misinformation, can spread in viral ways. So what was once, the word meme was often used in scare quotes initially, because people thought it was just an analogy. But it, the 
term has entered the lexicon of science because it describes a real phenomena. Um, and in fact, the World Health Organization just declared that infodemics are a major obstacle to our addressing the COVID pandemic. Um, they're act so, and they're actually calling for uh, better public health programs for addressing uh, infodemic or you know, viral spread of nonsense. And basically philosophers like me have been trying to figure out how to stop the viral spread of nonsense for thousands of years. And I think we have a few ideas we bring to the table that can help uh, what I call the emerging science of mental immunity, cognitive immunology, that can really help take that to another level and help us address the, the social dislocation that uh, the viral spread of, of bad ideas on social media is causing. Absolutely. Uh, so when we talk about bad ideas, you know, easier said than done, since we all have different opinions. Um, and one, one of the common responses that you address very well, I thought, in the book um, is this response of, well, who's to say? Who's to say what's a good idea, what's a bad idea? And that's kind of an easy way to avoid the conversation, dismiss it. But you say that this is not, not a good question, that we are, in fact, the ones to say. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when you teach philosophy, you ask students to grapple with moral questions, with normative questions. Um, and a lot of times these questions make people uncomfortable. And it's a very common for say an introductory philosophy student to, to say, well, who's to say what's right or what's wrong? Who's to say what's good or what's bad? Um, and the way the question functions is to suggest that none of us has standing to make value judgments. But if you buy into that idea, then we never have the value converse, the conversations about deep values that are needed to bring us together. So I call this idea that, um, uh, you know, that the values are subjective and who's to say, I call this an actual a mental immune disruptor because it disrupts the cognitive processing that is needed to weed out dysfunctional values. So we need to have these difficult conversations, even if they make us uncomfortable. And we have to stop kicking the can down the road by just saying, oh, well, who's to say uh, values are subjective. Um, uh, you know, if, if you actually try to find out what's really right or what's really wrong, you're just imposing your cultural norms on somebody else. Well, actually, no, we don't have to regard good idea as synonymous with idea I happen to like or bad idea as, as idea I disapprove of, ideas have actual objective properties. They tend to trigger certain behaviors. They can be objectively true or false. And the philosophers have been recommending for a long time that we actually uh, investigate the, the properties of ideas in something like an objective or scientific way discover those properties, both the good making qualities that make ideas worth holding and the bad making qualities that make ideas best avoided and try to get clear about those things and to let go of the beliefs that don't serve us well. And when you do that, philosophical inquiry, value inquiry becomes something very similar to scientific inquiry. So part of, part of this process is for us being willing to 
let go of our beliefs, to not cling to them as much in the face of challenges, to sort of yield to the better reason. Um, and I'm, ge I'm generalizing here because it's you go a lot more in depth about that and listeners can read the book to find out more about that. Um, but I think an issue is that we sort of live in a time right now where people tend to identify with their beliefs. Like their beliefs are a core part of their identity, especially when you're talking about political. Um, so is that sort of tribal mentality where your belief is a fundamental part of who you are? Is that another mental immune disruptor? That's a, that's a terrific question, Michael. Um, so psychologists have discovered a phenomenon they call identity protective cognition. So the idea is that once, if you take in certain beliefs and make them central to your identity, then when anybody raises questions or challenges about those beliefs, you very quickly get defensive. And when you get defensive, it's hard to think in a clear and fair-minded way. Um, what's ha actually happening when that, when that, something like that happens, what, what happens is your own mental immune system goes on into fight or flight mode and starts generating all kinds of reasons to neutralize the question or the challenge. Even if the question or the challenge might be, have, be a good one and worth listening to because you might learn from it. So one of the things we're learning through the science of, cog of mental immunity is that I, it's, it's a bad idea to let beliefs define your identity. Uh, you should always hold your beliefs loosely because when you start to grip them tightly, you compromise your own mental immunity um, and, and become closed to, to certain possibilities. And you cease to learn in the same way. Now, um, I've been talking about questions and challenges and doubts. These are actual the antibodies of the mind. Um, and we have to learn to pay attention to those doubts and questions and challenges because they almost always have something to teach us, even if they don't completely dislodge the beliefs we favor. And so we have to learn to listen even to the little tiny voice in the back of our head that says, you know what, something doesn't seem quite right here. And if you can teach your students to listen to that voice and to try to articulate their doubts, with questions, you can do a whole lot to strengthen their mental immune systems and, and help make them resistant to propaganda and uh, manipulative marketing techniques. I think another component of that is that, you know, there's so much happening. There are so many issues we need to pay attention to. There are just so many things going on in our lives. We're so busy with everything. And so all, all this work you're talking about takes time and sometimes it, can feel a lot easier to look at other people and be like, okay, these people are like me. These people have similar beliefs to me. So whatever they believe, I'm just going to believe that and sort of use that as a shortcut. Um, yeah. So how would you, how would you combat that? Well, a certain amount of that is actually, so in any culture complex enough to have a division of cognitive labor, where, you know, I'll, I'll investigate chemistry, you investigate physics, and then we'll each trust each other and we'll each educate each other. You know, that makes a lot of sense. In a world that's hugely complex, we need lots of specialists to investigate things. Uh, the important thing is to trust the people who have real expertise, the people who really know what they're talking about, and learn not to trust people who don't. 
Um, and it, the same thing goes for the body's immune system. The body's immune system has to identify pathogens and try to neutralize them or rid the body of them, but it has to actually let in um, nutrients. It has to actually leave the body's own tissues alone. When the body's immune system attacks the body or the body's own tissues, that's called autoimmunity. And it's the phenomenon where the immune system kind of goes haywire and attacks the wrong things. The exact same thing can happen in our minds when, for example, um, well, so, so when I was, I grew up in a, in a home that practically worshiped Martin Luther King. He was a moral exemplar. And many years later, I learned that King was actually a serial adulterer who cheated regularly on his wife. And when I heard this, my mind just kicked into gear, generating all kinds of, of reasons to dismiss this information. Oh, J. Edgar Hoover must have come up with this information to smear King, blah, 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 blah. I had 10 reasons to reject this information because I wanted to preserve the picture of Martin Luther King as, as a pure moral exemplar. Now, I've since learned that my mind's immune system was betraying me there. It was trying to prevent good, true information from entering my mind and helping me develop a, a more accurate and more nuanced picture of the world. Um, but these things happen all the time. And uh, a conspiracy theorist is someone, isn't somebody who fails to ask questions. That conspiracy theorists aren't just gullible. A lot of times they combine gullibility for bad information with hypercriticality of mainstream information. It's not as if they don't, aren't able to ask good, tough questions. And sometimes they ask questions uh, sometimes they're more skeptical than those of us with more mainstream views. So to actually diagnose and treat conspiracy thinking, you have to uh, look at the ways in which their body, their, their mind's immune system is, is underactive in some ways, but overactive in others. And we actually have to train our mental immune systems to spot and remove the truly bad beliefs rather than attacking good information. It's a, it's a distinction that you make in the book that I found helpful just in my own life to think about um, the difference between reasoning and rationalizing. Um, I think you used, you used cheating on taxes as an example of that. I think I did, yes. Um, yeah, I think, I think when, when you reason in order to win or to get the, out, the conclusion you want, you're rationalizing. But when you're reasoning to find out, you're doing something entirely different. Um, and I actually argue that when you when you reason when you reason to defeat somebody in dialectical combat, you're inviting a mental immune disorder because you're taking sides in a way that makes it hard for your mind to do a good job of sifting out the good from the bad, the bad from the good. Um, and so, culture wars, where people take sides and begin to uh, use reasons as weapons with uh, each other actually compromise our mental immune systems. And if you want the short answer to the question of why so many crazy beliefs are proliferating through our society today, um, is that our the, the current culture war is compromising mental immune systems all over the place. Actually, the story goes back quite a bit further than the culture war, which has really only been playing out for the last 30 or 40 years. Turns out we've been doing things to neglect and abuse our mental immune systems for 
for a couple of centuries and it's catching up to us now in a, in, in a big, big way. There's um, a line in the book you have that addresses this that I thought was very intriguing that I want to mention here. Um, you say, the way of inquiry is also the way to heal America's broken ideological divide, which this question obviously has been at the heart of a lot of issues for many years now. And essentially you're saying, here's the solution, which is a pretty, pretty bold, pretty bold claim. Yeah. So in, uh, let's see, I guess it's chapter five of the book. I contrast, so, so there was a, a really interesting story played out on a stage in, in Kentucky when the, uh, when Bill Nye, the science guy, debated uh, a guy named Ken Ham, who was an evangelical Christian, and they were debating whether the, the Genesis story is literally tr scientifically true. Um, and the moderator in that debate asks both, both men a question. He said, what would it take to change your mind? And Bill Nye said, evidence. Give me evidence of this kind, that kind, or that kind, and I would have to change my mind. And when Ken Ham's turn came, he said, nothing. Nothing will change. Nothing will convince me that the word of God is not true. These two men exhibited dramatically different attitudes towards how you deal with evidence and how you engage one another in conversation. Um, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, was basically, he was he was exhibiting what psychologists called the growth mindset. He was willing to specify that any number of things, that he would take in information of any number of kinds, use them to change his mind and, and grow. Whereas, and I call that the way of inquiry. Um, meanwhile, Ken Ham was basically saying, I've got my beliefs and I'm hanging on to them. And if you have information that conflicts with that, so much the worse for your information. I call Ham's attitude the way of belief and argue that it promotes a fixed mindset that prevents us from, from growing. And, and actually the, the reason why it's important for, for everyone listening and for every student we work with to adopt the, the way of inquiry rather than the way of belief is that people who adjust their, their worldview every time they get new information, end up becoming better adjusted people. Surprise, surprise. If you refuse to adjust your thinking in response to the evidence, you become less well-adjusted, less happy, less successful along any number of, there's a lot of good research on this. And if you adopt the way of belief and refuse to learn anything that might conflict with your cherished beliefs, um, you're actually inviting mental immune disorder into your life and compromising your own health and well-being. So I was tempted to ask you what sort of the, what's the key takeaway or what should people do after listening to this? But in the conclusion, you say that you're sort of reluctant to issue these kinds of directives. Um, so, <laughs> so instead I will ask you, um, for people who haven't read the book yet, because obviously they are ordering it now, it's on their way to them now, <laughs> But while they're waiting for that, um, what's something they can start to think about, would you say? Yeah. So, so we philosophers are dispositionally uh, uh, allergic to how-to advice. <laughs> like, so, so uh, there are people in this world who, who love 
practical advice. And then there are people who are kind of averse to it. And we philosophers tend are more, uh, more like the latter. But I've come to realize that my own aversion to practical advice is probably dysfunctional in lots of ways and that there is a, more, there is a place for practical advice. And so in the closing chapter of the book, I offer sort of 12 practical things you can do to develop your own immunity to bad ideas. I'll mention a few of them. Uh, and perhaps this is more, uh, even more straightforward in terms of practical guidance than the, than the final chapter. You can tell me what you think later, Michael. But um, so I mentioned earlier that, that questions and doubts are the mind's antibodies. So learn to listen to them because often they have something important to teach us. Um, number two, learn to treat challenges from other people, not as threats, but as opportunities to learn. You, you need to keep your mind's immune system from freaking out, going into uh, defense mode, if you want to learn, grow, and, and to dialogue in a fruitful fashion. Third, avoid willful belief. So it turns out that when you believe things because you want them to be true, rather than because you know them to be true, you end up compromising your, your mind's immune system. And even though you think you might be able to do it in just certain parts of your life, it turns out that if you indulge in wishful thinking in one area of your life, it's likely to spill over and increase your susceptibility to bad ideas in other areas of your life. So try to avoid willful belief. Um, I urge people to think of their beliefs as house guests that might wear out their welcome. And, um, and someday you might, you might be okay with keeping certain beliefs around for a while, but don't treat them as heirloom furniture that you need to pass on through the generations. Treat them as, as things that might wear out their welcome and need to be replaced with, with better ideas when the time comes. Here's another, I think, really important one. We live in a culture that has valorized the idea that reasons are, are what make reasonable beliefs reasonable or reasonable ideas reasonable. So we have this mental picture in our minds that a, a reasonable belief is something that sits, sits atop a foundation of evidence or reasons. But when you buy into that picture of reasonable belief or reasonable idea, you end up looking for the reasons you need to justify the beliefs you have. And you become more susceptible to what psychologists call confirmation bias, which turns out to be a, uh, one, of the, one of the things that misleads us more than any of our other cognitive biases. I, in the book, I recommend instead that you replace this picture of reasonable belief with another, um, that one that Socrates held. And Socrates held that to be considered reasonable, a belief should be able to withstand questioning um, without becoming destabilized. So when you replace your mental picture of what a reasonable belief looks like from the one to the more Socratic picture, it turns out you recognize that for good reasons for a belief isn't necessarily enough to make it reasonable because there might be 17 reasons against it that more than counterweigh the four good reasons for it. 
So never look just for supporting reasons. Always look at, look at the cons as well as the pros. Weigh them both up. And that's how you gain um, a higher degree of immunity. So we need, we need to um, replace the, the picture of reasonable belief that comes sort of pre-installed in most of us uh, with another wiser version that dates all the way back to ancient Greece. That's great. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's all very helpful. I hope everybody was taking notes. <laughs> um, so one more question I want to ask you, and this is a question that we like to finish off all of our interviews with, since we are primarily geared towards teachers here. Who was your favorite teacher? Uh, I'd have to say my high school physics teacher, uh, Mr. John Shore, um, just made me fall in love with science and, and physics. Uh, I went to college fully expecting to major in physics to follow in his footsteps um, and uh, kind of got uh, seduced off the path of scientific righteousness by a charismatic philosophy professor who, who I don't fault him for that at all. He, he uh, I'm very happy to have ended up where I did. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll end on that note. Okay, great. Um, I was expecting it to be a philosophy teacher, so I like I like that you surprised me there. Well, actually, after graduating college, I actually taught high school physics oh, really? uh, for a year before going to graduate school in philosophy. So uh, I'm a big fan of the sciences, and if I had to describe what I do in philosophy, philosopher of science is a pretty good description. The, a technical term in philosophy. We philosophers call people who think about inquiry and learning and reasoning, knowledge, we call, it, call ourselves epistemologists, which, which is a really ugly word for a, actually a beautiful field of inquiry. Um, but it's a, it's a field of inquiry that has been become so hyper-technical that it's very hard to get students interested in it. And I think that my book, Mental Immunity, can give philosophers and epistemologists in particular are really exciting way to get their students interested in, in the traditional questions of epistemology and in the process deepen their craving for wisdom. That's great. So that's how it all comes together. <laughs> um, well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure getting to talk to you. And you, Michael, let's do this again sometime. All right. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. Good luck with everything with the book coming out. Thanks, Michael. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.